0: This is made possible by O oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome to a special feed drop. That's what we call it in the podcast biz, uh, where you take over somebody's feed and you drop in one of your own episodes. Uh, This is Tom Merritt, substitute host for politics, politics, politics. I'll be handing the baton over uh to kevin ryan to go forth into the politics journey for the next week until justin gets back uh, but we're going to finish the week with one of my own episodes this comes from a series i do called know a little more and actually i work on this with justin uh i haven't always but in the past couple of seasons uh dog and pony show audio has come in and helped uh, improve the production value kind of help brainstorm better ways of telling the stories and everything and This past season, if you go to knowalittlemore.com, is all about something called the Mother of All Demos, which kind of uh, provided a framework for the entire season to be about technologies that came out of that. The season before was a little less focused, and so... I wonder if some of you may have missed, even if you were no a little more subscribers, uh, an episode I did about Taiwan. I feel like this episode in particular is great to give to the politics, politics, politics audience. I did it because Taiwan is essential to the technology scene. And so I wanted to explain this is why it is in such an odd position in the world uh, and what effect it will have on chips. But to be honest, the majority of the episode, 95% of the episode is just explaining, here's what happened in Taiwan. Here's why you hear things like, well, Taiwan considers itself to actually be China uh, and mainland China doesn't like that very much. Uh, and, And what does that even mean when an island that's, you know a very small percentage of, of the population and land size of the mainland considers itself to actually be the country in exile how does that work uh and and of course uh it- How did we get into a position where the United States recognizes mainland China as the only China, but still is really friendly with Taiwan? And in fact, its ally and potential defender. So that is all explained in the following episode of Know A Little More that we're dropping into the feed for you this week. Just wanted to kind of set it up, give you that context before we dropped you right into it, and I hope you enjoy it. Has Taiwan always been ethnically and politically Chinese? Why does everything say Taiwan ROC on it? Feels like I don't see anything with made in Taiwan on it anymore. Now it all says China. What happened there? Taiwan is at once one of the most vexing political situations on the globe and one of the most important places in the world of technology but few people understand how it got to be either. And understanding that is essential to understanding what might happen next and how that matters a lot for the technology industry. Let's help you know a little more about Taiwan. This is not going to be a Dan Carlin-style dive into the history of Taiwan. I wouldn't even pretend uh, to try to take that on. The guy's a master. Uh, But if you know that history, consider this a refresher. For those of you who know a little about the island, or maybe nothing at all, consider this an excellent starting point to understanding it. And for all of you, I don't think understanding it is likely to get less important in the coming years. Because it's one of the places on Earth where it's conceivable to see an actual war involving China and the U.S. happen, and... It's one of the most important places in the world for building technology. Chips are in everything these days, and the chips are made mostly by companies from Taiwan. But let's start with the where. Taiwan is 168 islands. Most of them are very small. This is one of those things where you're like, wow, Hawaii's a lot more islands than I thought when you look at the number on paper. The Penghu Islands are two small ones that'll show up on the map really easily. But really, when you look at Taiwan on a map, what you're mostly gonna see is the main island with the three main cities, Taipei, Tainan, and Taichung. Uh, That island's about the size of Vermont or Albania. Remember Albania. Taiwan is located partway between the Philippines to its south, and South Korea and Japan to the north, but it's very close to mainland China. It's 160 kilometers off the coast of southeastern China. That's about the same distance between Dublin and Belfast. You would not be able to fit Ireland between Taiwan and the mainland. Okay, so now we know where it is. Why is it important both to the tech industry and to world politics? We'll get to the tech industry part of it later. Let's start with the dispute over what Taiwan thinks it is and what China thinks it is. Because Taiwan thinks it's China. It's oversimplifying but you'll see what I mean. This is one of the most common confusions I hear from people when they talk about Taiwan and China. It's a little hard to wrap your head around. Taiwan's government officially calls the country the Republic of China. Not the Taiwanese Republic of China, not the Republic of China in Taiwan, the Republic of China. I mean, that's kind of odd, right? Isn't there already a Republic of China? Yes, the People's Republic of China exists on the mainland in what most people call China. That's the one with the capital in Beijing. Both the People's Republic of China and... Taiwan's Republic of China consider themselves the legitimate successor to the republic founded in China on January 1, 1912, after the overthrow of the Qing dynasty. Where they differ is that Taiwan considers itself the true continuation of that republic, and the People's Republic of China says that republic ended in 1949 and was replaced by the People's Republic of China. So what Taiwan is depends on who you ask. The People's Republic of China, to oversimplify things a little, says that Taiwan is just a breakaway province. It's part of the People's Republic. Eventually, it's going to need to stop denying that fact, cooperate with the central government, and unify with the mainland. Hence, China's strong objections to calling Taiwan a country or having a full diplomatic relationship with it. The U.S. wouldn't want anyone having diplomatic relations with Texas or Hawaii, and the U.K. doesn't let Scotland go have separate foreign relations with other countries. Meanwhile, the government of Taiwan still considers itself the rightful ruler of all China, at least on paper. Hence its insistence on officially calling itself the Republic of China. And so you get weird situations like... China objecting to Taiwan competing separately in the Olympics. So, Taiwanese athletes have to call themselves Chinese Taipei and use the Olympic flag if they want to compete as a separate team. Taipei. Also being watched by Chinese Jacques Rogge and President Who. President Two looking on carefully as Chinese Taipei entered well, the stadium. Absolutely massive roar. There's been such a problem over what to call this team. The Chinese and the Taiwanese could never seem to agree. And in fact, it was Taiwan that kept China out of the Olympics for many years just because of these arguments over who was the real China. Now, there are other similar arrangements that China will point to. For example, England, Scotland and Wales are all part of the UK, the United Kingdom, but they compete in World Cup competitions as separate teams. The difference being they are not all countries that also call themselves the United Kingdom. I bring this up to illustrate the point that People's Republic of China makes. If Taiwan is just a province of China, it wouldn't be odd to let them compete separately in things. There are examples of that. So we'll let them compete separately, but call it under a provincial name, throw Chinese in front of it so that people are just clear that this is part of China. Taiwan goes along with this so that its athletes can compete separately. And they consider themselves China, so uh, why not call them Chinese? Chinese Taipei? It's way more complicated than this. In reality, there's a lot more consideration that goes into it. But this gives you the gist, and it helps illustrate how seriously these countries take the on-paper meanings of this dispute. One thing the two countries agree on is that the Republic of China started in 1912. Sun Yat-sen was the founder and the first provisional president of the republic. He's honored by both the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China on Taiwan for ending the rule of China's imperial dynasties. But it didn't result in stability right away. China's political history in the 1920s and 30s is full of disputes between the Nationalist Party, a.k.a. the Kuomintang, and the Communist Party, Sometimes those disputes became battles. The two parties did team up during World War II to fight their common enemies, but they never unified. And the People's Republic of China considers the Republican era to have ended on October 1st, 1949, with the proclamation of the People's Republic of China by Mao Zedong. The Republic of China in Taiwan disagrees with that. So that's where the Republic of China and the People's Republic of China come from. Let's talk a little about Taiwan and how it became part of China in the first place. Let's go back in history. Remember I mentioned those smaller islands, the Penghu Islands, off the coast of mainland China and off the coast of the bigger island of Taiwan? Those, historically, were often under mainland sway. Things kind of were a little loosey-goosey. There'd be some patrols, maybe some tributes paid. The larger island, though, was somewhat independent. In 1622, the Europeans arrived. First the Dutch, then the Spanish. The Dutch called the island Ilha Formosa, or the beautiful island, which was shortened to Formosa, which became the European name for the island. So if you hear the island called Formosa, that's a European name for that island the Chinese didn't like the idea of the Europeans getting too involved in that big island. It was fine if it just sat there and minded its own business, but they didn't want a bunch of Europeans there. So it was finally annexed by China's Qing dynasty in 1683. There were attempted invasions over the next couple of centuries. Japan tried to invade. France tried to invade. But Taiwan remained under Chinese control for a good two centuries. Then, At the end of a war between China and Japan in 1895, Taiwan was ceded to the Japanese Empire, where it remained until the end of World War II. So it was loosely affiliated with China until the late 1600s, then solidly part of China for a couple centuries, then occupied by the Japanese for 50 years, so it made sense in 1945 could give that island back to China. In the historic conference room at Potsdam, Mr. Attlee and Mr. Bevin are greeted by their American and Russian colleagues. With the end of the Berlin Conference, the hopes of the world in complete agreement between the allies have been fulfilled. In July 1945, the U.S., U.K., and China agreed to what is called the Potsdam Declaration. Among many provisions, there was one that said the islands of Taiwan would be restored to China. On August 15, 1945, Japan's emperor accepted the terms of the Potsdam Declaration and on October 25, 1945, officially surrendered. After the surrender of Japan, Japan's governor general of Taiwan signed papers handing over administration of the island to General Chen Yi, a nationalist of the Republic of China. General of the Republic of China, but on the nationalist, not the communist side. One technicality, though, during all of that handover, nowhere did Japan confirm in writing that they were giving up their claim to Taiwan. Now, that wasn't a cause for concern in reality, but it was a detail that needed to be taken care of, an I to be dotted, a T to be crossed. And there were a lot of those. For example, Japan technically remained at war even after the surrender. They surrendered, but they didn't end the war on paper. Not something that really mattered in practice, But you kind of wanted everyone to be clear on that point, right? So some official treaties were worked on to nail down these and a whole lot of other technical details to create a peace. Problem was, while the paperwork was getting drawn up, China was having a civil war. The communists, led by Mao Zedong, and the nationalists, led by Chiang Kai-shek, no longer were united by an external foe. So... They started once again battling for control of the country, this time in earnest. And while the Allies had been doing all the paperwork with the Nationalists, the Communists were starting to win this civil war. In fact, Mao felt confident enough to proclaim the People's Republic of China as a replacement for the Republic on October 1st, 1949. And by December 7th, Shang and the Nationalists had evacuated their army to Taiwan and set up a capital in Taipei and about 2 million Chinese people and soldiers made the move to Taiwan along with him. Meanwhile, there were all those little details that hadn't been taken care of regarding the end of the war with Japan. Lots of stuff, rebuilding, compensation, and of course, declaring the war actually over. So the Treaty of San Francisco was created to wrap up all those details and was signed by Japan on September 8th, 1951. Six years after the end of hostilities, the San Francisco Peace Treaty brings to an end the state of war with Japan. In the War Memorial building, Monsieur Schumann for France adds one of the 49 signatures to the treaty. So the Japanese peace treaty is signed, allowing a former enemy to win her way back to full partnership in the councils of world peace. Among its many provisions, Japan formally renounced any claim to Taiwan. Great! Except... China didn't sign it. Because by that time, there were two governments claiming to represent China there was Maos on the mainland and Chiang Kai-shek's in Taiwan. Shang had held strong in Taiwan over those couple of years with some U.S. support and U.S. troops and continued to claim to be the rightful government of China. There was some recent experience with supporting exile governments too. That exile government of France held out in England throughout World War II and had recently been restored. So there was some feeling that maybe the same thing will happen in China, at least on the U.S. side. Meanwhile, the USSR wanted to support its communist comrades and argued that Mao had won, he had the mainland, and should be recognized as the legitimate government. And Japan, they just, I mean, I'm going to oversimplify here too, but I mean, they kind of just wanted any China to sign something declaring the war over. So to solve that, On April 28, 1952, Japan and the nationalist Republic of China government on Taiwan signed the Treaty of Taipei, formally ending the war between Japan and the Republic of China in Taiwan, not the mainland. But it was enough to satisfy Japan, and it settled the idea that Japan had no claim on Taiwan. It certainly didn't settle which of the governments of China properly had the claim on Taiwan, a claim that is not yet fully settled, unless you ask the People's Republic of China. Now, there's another little wrinkle to this. Back during the war in 1942, when everybody was on better terms with each other, Sun Tse-feng, whose sister was married to Sun Yat-sen, the man who founded the first Republic of China in 1912, Sun Sei feng signed a document along with a Soviet diplomat named Maxim Litvinov and the U.S. President Roosevelt and U.K. Prime Minister Churchill that became the basis of the United Nations Declaration. And because those are the first four countries to sign the document, those four countries got a special position in the formation of the U.N. And so the U.S., U.K., Soviet Union, and the United States were guaranteed to be on the U.N.'s Permanent Security Council. And for nine weeks in the spring of 1945... San Francisco was the center of men's hopes for lasting peace. Delegates representing 46 nations came to San Francisco on April 25th, 1945. Representing almost 2,000 million people, more than 80% of humanity. All at war when the conference was begun, they came with hope born of common struggle. When the UN was formally founded in 1945, China got its seat in the U.N. and its seat on the Security Council. Now, in 1945, that civil war was heating up and Mao hadn't proclaimed the People's Republic, but they gave the seat to Shang because he was nominally in control and the tide hadn't turned against him yet. There was some talk about maybe doing dual representation for the two parties because of the war. But that talk ended in 1949 when the People's Republic of China was founded and Shang, you know, went to Taiwan. So Shang held on to the seat, even though he no longer had the mainland. In fact, Taiwan had China's seat in the UN until 1971. It was a perilous situation, though. Both countries strenuously called for there to be just one China. Mao said, there's just one China. It's us. Shang said, there's just one China. It's us. And of course, this is all happening while the U.S. and the USSR are facing off with nuclear weapons at the height of the Cold War. It seemed unwise for a huge communist country like China to have no seat at the biggest diplomatic table in the world. It was not productive for world stability. All countries wanted a better solution to this. Now, again, I'm way oversimplifying things here, but the general situation of we really need to resolve this led to US President Richard Nixon secretly sending National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger to visit with China's premier uh, under Mao, Zhou Enlai. Thank you. Thank you. He was often seen as the successor to Mao. He didn't end up succeeding, but his ally, Deng Xiaoping, did. Uh, Deng Xiaoping went on to govern China in the 1980s. In that talk between Zhou and Kissinger on July 9, 1971, Kissinger made clear that, quote, we are not advocating a two-China's solution or a one-China, one-Taiwan solution. Okay, that sounds pretty good to China, right? Zhou said, the quote, the prospect for a solution and the establishment of diplomatic relations between our two countries is hopeful. Good progress. Way to go, Hank Kissinger. And on July 15th, 1971, President Nixon announced he would visit the People's Republic of China the following year. I want to put our policy in the clearest possible context. Our action in seeking a new relationship with the People's Republic of China will not be at the expense of our old friends. It is not directed against any other nation. We seek friendly relations with all nations. Any nation can be our friend without being any other nation's enemy. Now, remember, Nixon's U.S. had been fighting a proxy war against China in Vietnam for almost a decade. This is a huge, shocking announcement. And then another thing happens, which either seems like a setback for Nixon or maybe an inevitable result of all these mood changes. On October 25, 1971, a coalition of Soviet bloc and non-aligned countries, along with the U.K. and France, two NATO members... Voted to give the People's Republic of China the UN seat in place of Taiwan. Guinea? Guinea. Yes! Yes! <laughs> USSR? Tanzania? Yeah. Yes! United States? No! Cameroon? Yes! Yes! Canada? Wait! Oui. Yes! No! Yes. Venezuela? No! Follows in favor 76, opposed 35, abstention 17. The draft resolution adopted that vote was initiated by Albania. You know, Albania, the one that's about the same size as Taiwan. That's why I asked you to remember it. Now the US protested, they acted upset. But Nixon had already said he would go to China, and it's not like he didn't see this vote coming when he did. And he did go to China. February 21st, 1972, U.S. President Nixon began a seven-day visit to three cities in China, including a meeting with Chairman Mao Zedong. Mao allegedly told Nixon, I believe our old friend, Chiang Kai-shek would not approve of this. U.S. TV audiences got their first real look at China. And of course we got the phrase, only Nixon could go to China. That visit changed a lot of things for Taiwan, too, and really set us up for the odd situation we're in now. The meetings resulted in what's called the Shanghai Communique. The U.S. acknowledged that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China. (laughs) It's kind of an easy thing to say. Taiwan thinks there's one China. Eh, People's Republic thinks there's one China. So, hey, all the Chinese people on either side of the Strait think there's one China. We can all agree on that, right? But they set aside that crucial question, I'm going to quote now, crucial question obfuscating the normalization of relations. They said, look, everybody thinks there's one China. We're not going to let that get in the way. Clever little diplomatic sidestep that let them be friends or at least friendlier with both Chinas. In fact, the U.S. warmed up to the People's Republic of China, but maintained formal relations with the Republic of China and Taiwan until 1979. And that happened because of a little charm offensive. In 1978, China's Communist Party, post-Mao, started really sweetening the deal. It declared that China was in a united front with the United States, Japan, and Western Europe against the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had designs on China. They were neighbors, with Mongolia as a little bit of a buffer. They weren't getting along. China supported U.S. operations in communist Afghanistan against the Soviet-supported regime there. The Mujahideen? That's a whole separate story. China also conducted a military expedition against the U.S.'s old nemesis, Vietnam. China did all that. So what are you going to do when somebody does all that for you? Well, on January 1st, 1979, U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Zhou's old friend Chairman Deng Xiaoping issued the Joint Communique on the Establishment of Diplomatic Relations. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. This ended U.S. recognition of the Republic of China in Taiwan. Over. And established formal relations with the People's Republic of China. Done. It also ended the mutual defense treaty with the government on Taiwan. No more U.S. troops stationed there. We're done. So really, the U.S. just up and abandoned Taiwan? Not exactly. Because not everybody in the U.S. was pleased with the president just ending the defense pact with Taiwan. You see, the mutual defense treaty with Taiwan had been passed by the U.S. Senate in 1954. And the Senate, particularly Senator Barry Goldwater, figured the Senate's the only ones who can undo that treaty. So Senator Goldwater brought a case to the Supreme Court, Goldwater v. Carter. But the court basically said, our name's Paul, this is between y'all. It issued a dismissal based on the fact that the case was a political matter. And so they weren't gonna rule on it and they vacated any of the lower court orders the legislative and executive branches needed to work this out amongst themselves. They hadn't done all the things they could do to resolve this yet, so don't bring the justice into it. In fact, Justice Powell wrote in his concurrence that if the Senate had issued a resolution objecting to the dissolution of the treaty, then he thought it would become a matter for the courts. The Senate had drafted a resolution, but it hadn't voted on it. So, the US Congress actually took the advice and said, all right, we'll legislate this. It went to work on making a new law. And on April 10, 1979, the US enacted the Taiwan Relations Act. That act defined how the US sees Taiwan separately from the People's Republic of China and has shakily, but still to this day, guided international relations around the two countries. The act refers to the governing authorities of Taiwan. That avoids the whole issue of who gets to call themselves the Republic of China. It did not restore diplomatic relations with Taiwan, nor did it recognize its government. Doing either of those would have undone the last decade of warming relations with the People's Republic of China instantly. So no, we will not recognize Taiwan's government. Instead, the act said Taiwan would be treated under US laws the same as, quote, foreign countries, nations, states, governments, or similar entities. It's not a country, but we're gonna treat it like one. The American Institute in Taiwan, the AIT, will not at all be an embassy, but according to this law, it can do anything an embassy can do. Not an embassy, but it can do all the things embassies do. And all agreements made with Taiwan's Republic of China before 1979, would stay in effect with the governing authorities of Taiwan except the Mutual Defense Pact. Now, that's puzzling. You're probably thinking, wasn't that Senator Goldwater's whole sticking point? Yes. So here's what the act did do for that. It said, quoting again... "...the United States will make available to Taiwan such defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain a sufficient self-defense capability." And, separate quote, "...shall maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security or social or economic system of the people of Taiwan." So, the U.S., will be capable of resisting any coercion against Taiwan. In other words, don't call it a country, treat it like a country. Don't call it an embassy, but use it like an embassy. And don't call it a defense pact, but make sure Taiwan is defended. And crucially through all of this, never once has the U.S. recognized the People's Republic of China's sovereignty over Taiwan. This approach has been called strategic ambiguity, and so far it has worked, kind of. It's still pissed off China. Oh, China was on the charm offensive. China was on the U.S.'s side. They were gonna team up against the Soviet Union. And then this. China's official position is that the Taiwan Relations Act is an unwarranted intrusion by the United States into the internal affairs of China. Deng Xiaoping viewed the U.S. after this as insincere, a feeling carried on and amplified by subsequent leaders. And over the years, the People's Republic of China drifted away from being united with the West, especially the U.S., against the USSR, and instead has fostered alliances with developing nations. But the U.S. has not backed off of strategic ambiguity. It reaffirmed the Taiwan Relations Act, with a non-binding resolution in the 1990s, a Congressional Research Service report in 2007, and a concurrent resolution in May 2016. All of those are symbolic, but they're all pointing to the fact that the US says, nope, TRA is still what we think. For its part, Taiwan has pursued its own strategic ambiguity. You think it would have declared itself an independent country, right? But it has not. It has never declared independence. Because in the early days, it wouldn't make sense to declare independence when you're declaring yourself the thing you would be declaring independent from. You don't declare independence from something that doesn't exist. In Chiang Kai-shek's view, he was in charge of the legitimate government of China. There was nothing to be independent from. However, since the US recognized the People's Republic of China, Taiwan's insistence on that point, their version of a one-China policy, has lessened. It hasn't abandoned it, but it's become less strident. If it ever abandoned that policy, though, theoretically, Taiwan could just declare itself Taiwan. Like, fine, we're not the Republic of China, we're Taiwan. And then probably have a better chance of getting some recognition from world governments. Except China would not be okay with that. In fact, worried about the rising possibility of Taiwan admitting reality, China passed a law on March 14, 2005, restating that there is only one China. Taiwan is a part of that one China. It's illegal for a part of China, including Taiwan, to secede. And all means to a peaceful reunification should be pursued. And that under that unification, Taiwan would get a lot of autonomy. You know, there's a lot of there was a lot of talk of one country, two systems, but in the law it said you get a lot of autonomy. However, if Taiwan declares itself independent or is taken over by another country, or if all possibility of peaceful unification is lost, China can then, under this law, take non-peaceful actions. The law states If it does go non-peaceful, it must do so while protecting Taiwanese civilians and foreigners as much as possible, as well as, this is the reason I bring it up, Taiwanese interests in the People's Republic of China. Pay attention to that, because that includes Foxconn and TSMC plants. So about that. Why are so many Taiwanese companies operating in China? Well, despite this huge difference, relations between Taiwan and China cooled off quite a bit in the 1990s. It seemed like China was hoping maybe they could just win over Taiwan by being economically cooperative. And the two decided to ignore their diplomatic differences and focus on economic ties. In fact, by 2002, China became Taiwan's largest market for exports. China hosts approximately 4,200 Taiwanese enterprises, and more than 240,000 Taiwanese people work in China. This dependence on China's economy is described as a blessing or a curse, depending on who you ask. On the one hand, it has made Taiwan dependent on China, which gives the People's Republic leverage over it. On the other hand, close economic ties do make military intervention more costly for the People's Republic. Taiwan's economic success is largely down to tech. The Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, founded in 1987, has a market cap equal to 90% of Taiwan's GDP. It is in the top 10 largest companies in the world by market cap, and a bigger semiconductor manufacturer than Intel or Samsung. It's huge, it makes all the chips. I mean, it doesn't literally make all the chips, but it kind of makes all the chips. TSMC's customers include Apple, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Broadcom, AMD, Ampere, Microsoft, MediaTek, and Sony. I'll stop, there's more. It makes about 60% of the world's semiconductors. Other major tech companies headquartered in Taiwan include Acer, and Asus, which make devices like phones, and laptops, and PCs, and a lot more. And Foxconn, which also lists on the stock market as Hanhai, and is famous for assembling Apple products in its mainland China-based factories, but also makes products for Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Huawei, with factories located obviously in Taiwan, but also Brazil, India, Vietnam, and all over Southeast Asia. Taiwan makes the most important part of arguably the most important devices for the world's economy. Electronics. They're in everything. I mean, they're not just in your computers. They're in your trucks, they're in your toasters, they're in everything. Okay, that's not even a very deep look at Taiwan. But it's still a lot, so let me summarize. Taiwan's current government originated on mainland China as one side of a civil war. Taiwan operates under the fading narrative that it is the true government of China, but it still says that on paper and on people's passports. Only 12 countries, mostly in Micronesia and the Caribbean, have full diplomatic relations with Taiwan. However, it's de facto treated like a country by the U.S. and others, but not fully recognized as a way to placate mainland China, which asserts that Taiwan is just a breakaway province that needs to be unified. Since the 1990s, economic interests have superseded diplomatic disagreements to the benefit of pretty much everybody. China got Taiwanese investments, the US got a cheap place to buy parts and assemble electronics, and Taiwan became dominant in the chip industry. Not to oversimplify the country's economy, but Taiwan is the engine that drives chip making. If Taiwan's companies suddenly disappeared, it would be a lot harder to make electronics anywhere in the world. And the U.S. has been able to pull off a magic trick, keeping mainland China happy while sheltering Taiwan. But strategic ambiguity is beginning to wear thin. A stricter regime in China is pressing the issue more and is less placated by economic benefits. From here, you're going to need to read elsewhere. You're going to need experts in international relations to explain more of this to you. But hopefully, you have a good grip on the basics with which to understand what's going on. In other words, I hope you know a little more about Taiwan. Know a Little More is researched, written, and hosted by me, Tom Merritt. Editing and production provided by Anthony Lamos in conjunction with Will Saddleberg and Dog & Pony Show Audio. It's issued under a Creative Commons Share Attribution 4.0 international license. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Relations between China and Chaiwan. Cool. Chaiwan. I did some stand-up in Taiwan about six years ago, and I left my scarf in a hostel. Can you ask Taiwan if they've found it and to send it to me if they have? Thank you.